Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's how today's guest describes himself in his most recent stand-up special. I look like a Muppet getting his PhD. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm familiar with my aesthetic. <laughs> I have very big features. If someone was to draw a caricature of me, it would just look like me. <laughs> I get it, look like a Muppet. A handsome Muppet, but a Muppet nonetheless. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today I am joined by that handsome Muppet himself, Hari Kondabolu. I've interviewed Hari a bunch of times over the past few years. First for his excellent 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu, and later for his equally wonderful Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives. Now he's reteaming with another previous Last Laugh guest, W. Kamau Bell, for a new season of their Back by Popular Demand podcast, Politically Reactive. It was so fun to catch up with Hari, who recently became a father for the first time, to talk about comedy, politics, and how he may have single-handedly changed the way people think about cartoon voices forever. So now, let's go to my conversation with Hari Kondabolu. Well, good to see you. It's good to see you, too. You're in, uh, you're in San Diego now, I hear? I'm in San Diego uh, until mid-November, and I return home. I Hopefully, New York will still be <laughs> standing post-election, regardless of what happens. Um, could, be a, could be a dicey time to move. Yeah, I mean, we've worried about that. Like, is it, will the civil unrest make it impossible to move into a two-bedroom in Park Slope? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. We'll see, you know, like, it just this year has been so, and, you know, everyone's experienced this, has been so all over the place. And, you know, I'm a touring stand-up comic who can't tour. And any other project I was working on can't be produced right now. Like production's kind of stopped and we had a baby and we moved cross country. So this is like the most unexpected, strange, amazing year. It's very strange to like have a rough year. That's also one of the best years of my life because we had a baby. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, do you think it kind of, in a way you were forced off the road by COVID, but you, you know, that probably helped because you were able to be there more (laughs) with your family. Yeah. Sometimes I I think it was, it's funny. There are moments where I'm like, it must've been fate and a stroke of good luck. And then I think, wait a second, hundreds of thousands of people (laughs) Die. If fate is like, we got to make sure Hari has time with his baby at the expense of hundreds of thousands of people, then fate is fucked up. Not not great. But, you know, everything happens for a reason, right? Right, right. <laughs> so hundreds of thousands of It is what it is, Matt. It is what That's it a, is. That's right. That's a wise right. man once said, it is what it is. Well, without the ability to do some of those other, you know, projects that you might have been doing, is that part of what, what made you want to come back with Politically Reactive? I think, that, I mean, that was certainly, I think, a factor for both of us in that we both had a bit more free time. And it's not like we d- disliked doing Politically Reactive. I mean, we stopped in part because it felt like it had run its course and it was only meant to be a one-year election podcast 
podcast to begin with, and we went to because of you know who won the election and people wanting to know how we felt about that. And you're you know you're coming back at this very fraught moment. Obviously, we're just like a few weeks away from the election now. So, what is your kind of mood in regards to the state of politics right now? How are you feeling? Fear. I mean, but that's been consistent for four years, and with my anxiety, I guess longer than that, but especially <laughs> the last four years. The optimism I see is in things like the Justice Democrats, all these young people who are marching even well before this. I mean, whether it's all those Parkland kids or any number of Greta Thunberg, Malala, all these people who are like of that generation, of this upcoming generation who are standing up and fighting. I mean, so many of the, that younger 18 to what 25 demographic, they wanted Liz Warren or Sanders and they want these huge sweeping changes. They don't understand why we are handcuffed by the system. And to me, those are all signs of of something positive. But in the short term, the idea of like not having a peaceful exchange of power if Biden wins, the idea that if he even if Trump wins, what does that mean for us? Um, the idea, I mean, it, it's poked so many holes in a system that we thought had checks and balances. I now know it's all a crock of shit and it was a bunch of handshake agreements. <laughs> yeah. The fact this man has not been imprisoned or at the bare minimum found guilty after impeached is an indication that the system is severely broken because how much more did he like he he's invincible as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing he can do at this point that will get him into trouble because he has all this support with these Republicans. Caligula would would have been <laughs> gotten another term. Do you know what I mean? Like there is absolutely no sense of moral obligation uh, and the Democrats are, you know, have their own set of weaknesses and, and their own, like, the older crop is certainly slowing things down. So, But I think, and there also keeps being these moments where we think, oh, maybe this is it. And I think, you know, Trump getting COVID was one of those things where a lot of people said, you know, maybe this will be the thing. But it seems like he, as you said, he's he's invincible and seems to have bounced back pretty quickly from that as well. I mean, he's a Teflon Don, man. That dude is like on, he's on, on his balcony Mussolini style <laughs> without a mask. And it's fine. Like the, 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 the parade after putting his Secret Service people in danger so we could drive around. I mean, the, the call to arrest Obama and Clinton, I mean, his political enemies, like, this dude is running uh, the country like a ruthless corporation slash dictator. Like he's ju he's just the military fatigues short of the whole of the full on experience. Like it's scary. Like it's um, the fact that there are still people who like if, if you have blind faith is something that does not require facts. And if you're uh, if you're willing to dispose of facts by saying fake news, which is essentially saying the only real truth is what I believe, which is usually a religious idea, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. If you're applying that to your politics and your worldview, it's done. You're done. There, it, once you've given up your ability to critically think, it's over. It's a devastating thing. Yeah. I think the hope is just that there's the small enough percentage of those people out there that were able to overcome it, but it's hard, it's hard to know what will happen. I'm, I'm absolutely, I mean, the idea of undecided voters to me is such a crock of shit. Like it, it's either people that won't tell you they're voting for Trump because they're embarrassed, but they're going to do it anyway. Or there are people that are so like, I mean, this is a, a not probably the nicest thing to say, but maybe some people shouldn't be allowed to vote. If you <laughs> are undecided a month in, maybe, you know, like after four years, like what needed to happen 
short of Donald Trump came to my house and killed my family, <laughs> I'm leaning towards Biden now. Yeah. Like, at I, what point is it like <laughs> he's done enough? Right. I'm curious how you kind of balance this, you know, urgency of of getting Trump out with maybe I would imagine that Biden was not your your first choice in the in the primaries. No. And you because you're, you're a pro- progressive guy and you, you know, you've been very outspoken about that. Um, so how do you how do you kind of balance that? And do you worry ever about being too critical of Biden, given the stakes of of the election? I didn't want Biden to be Obama's vice president. Like <laughs> yeah. I just I've never been. And he seems like a, a nice enough man, whatever that means. I've been to his home in D.C. a couple of times, which was neat. It was neat in part because it was like, oh, I'm taking a picture with this uh, political relic. And uh, (laughs) we say goodbye to Grandpa Joe and move to the next. And the idea that he's still a factor in this, you know, considering like when he talks about institutional racism, you can't help roll your eyes because it's like there's institutional racism in this country. I'm expecting him or I think he should say, I should know I helped create it. <laughs> like those yeah. laws that he helped put into place in mm-hmm. the 90s, like, oh, geez, like that's a generation he's helped destroy. So, you know, no, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm, and I'm also not someone who's like, don't say anything negative about Joe Biden. You, you, there's going to convince people not to vote for him. If that's going to do it, <laughs> if me saying that being critical is going to do it, we're fucked. Honestly, like that's an absurd. If you don't like Biden, you're not going to vote for Biden. That's just that. Like that's the end. Well, of it. I think there there might be a lot of people out there who don't like Biden, but feel so strongly about getting rid of Trump and are smart enough to realize that that's the only way to do sure. it. Sure, sure. But I mean, I mean, that's what I was saying. Like, it's not like he's compelling enough where it's like I'm I'm voting for Joe Biden. I'm when you're voting, you're voting against Trump. People like that's the thing. I feel like there's a contingent of people that are voting for Joe Biden. There's a bunch of people I'm voting against Trump. It can be there was this one former Trump voter that said I would vote for a can of tomatoes against Donald Trump. And I really do think that it's not it's not for Biden. It's against Trump. And that's a shame because, you know, that's to me, not really how you win an election. Like we've seen with Bush's second election, that's not always going to do it. And this is a guy that two wars, economies in shambles like that. I think that was pretty like I thought we're not going to reelect Bush. I was shocked the morning after that one. Like it was stunning. It was the only feeling I've had. Obama getting elected was the other extreme and of like, I can't believe we're in the stage in America. And Trump is the other end of that. Like, but I really thought the Bush reelection was going to be the greatest disappointment of my life. Yeah. Yeah. We had, you had no idea. <laughs> oh, God, that was such a rookie. It is a time where. Yeah. I mean, it, it occurs to me that you're, you know, we're all kind of trying to get through these next few weeks. But your podcast, I think, will the mission of your podcast might change a lot depending on how the election plays out, because it. In some ways. Yeah. I mean, because I know part of what you want to do is is push Biden to the left if you can, right? I mean, is that part of the what you... I don't think our podcast is... If AOC hasn't successfully been able to do this on her own or <laughs> yeah. with the squad, I don't think the, the podcast of two comedians will. I mean, I think more than anything, what we're trying to do is imagine a future that regardless of who's the president is the future that we want. And it's a future we didn't have with Obama. It's a future we likely weren't going to have with Clinton. It's a future where we need to imagine things like 
what's wrong with gerrymandering, the electoral college, discussion of states' rights versus federal rights, a discussion of what voter suppression actually is and how we stop that from happening. Let's talk about the prison industrial complex. Let's, you know, we had Desmond Mead on, who's a, a former convicted felon who's fought to get his voting rights back, but still doesn't have his full civil rights back. How do we change that? Like, to me, those are long-term fights. And if, if Trump's there, and it's like trying to fight while you're bleeding, but if Biden's there, you're still having to do the fight. Like, you know, the, the institutions at play, the corporate money that's at play, you know, money is is what causes most of this stuff. If we're talking about the, you know, prisons, it's the prison industrial complex. There's a lot of money that is being made. It's same thing w- with healthcare. You know, it's same thing with most of these things. It's like you have lobbyists who are putting money into the pockets of politicians and their campaigns. That's not like changing regardless of Trump. So for us, if Biden wins, we get to think forward in addition to the short term, what kind of like there's going to be there's more than the Michigan militia. What else is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if Trump wins, it's a matter of what does the next four years of resistance look like, which is a devastating thought, but is one that we, we have to plan for. We can't give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, so I want to I want to talk about your comedy a little bit um, because I actually just rewatched your your most recent uh, Netflix special Warn Your Relatives, which is really great, holds up really well. I like that you call yourself the Brown Lewis Black, who was our guest on this podcast last week, <laughs> and he's great it, as well. I, I, in real life, actually, it wasn't Lewis; it was Sam Kinison. That's what Tracy said. Oh, really? But I figured Lewis <laughs> Black would be the better. It was actually he's like the Brown. Sam Kinison. I just felt like Lewis Black as a reference with, yeah. actually, but it was actually Sam Kinison. So that's what, I, yeah. that's what Tracy Morgan actually heckled you, that you were the, the yeah, brown it was, Sam Kinison? <laughs> yeah, it was Sam Kinison, but I just felt like Lewis Black would, actually would. I don't think enough young people know who Sam Kinison is. Yeah. What's the what's the real story behind that Tracy Morgan thing? Because you kind of you you talk about it in the in the special, but was there was there more to, to how that ended no, up that's happening? Essentially, it. I'm on stage. I'm doing my set. Tracy's not heckling me as much as he's talking. (laughs) Yeah. Tracy talking in a small room is heckling. Yeah. (laughs) Like he's not actually saying it to me. He's saying it to the people around him, but it's essentially still a heckle. Yeah, because the other you know audience I mean? members, I'm sure, are, are listening to what he's saying. Well, it's like, who's first of all, it's like, who's saying that? If you figure out it's him, it's immediately yeah, it's like... it's a little distracting. Yeah, it's like, like the brown Sam Kinison. Like, <laughs> you know his voice. So, that, so that's true. That happened. I was doing a show in New York for 20 people, and I was bombing. Like, it was going terribly, which, by the way, when you're bombing in front of 20 people, it doesn't even feel like a show anymore. <laughs> It feels like you're disturbing a dinner party. (laughs) Who brought the asshole with the microphone? (laughs) Show's going terribly, and all of a sudden I hear someone heckling me in the back of the room, right? This guy's like, why is he yelling so much? He's like the brown Lewis Black. Why is he yelling so much? And I'm like, who is heckling me right now? And I look into the audience, and it was Tracy Morgan. Now, I don't like being heckled, but if you're going to heckle me, you better be Tracy Morgan. Outside, him giving me the advice afterwards, that happened. The thing I don't mention is he asked me if I wanted to go with him to the comedy cellar for a Patrice O'Neill benefit and that his car was parked like across the street. And I, I said no, because my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen her all day. I, I probably should go there. And then, she, you know, and then he went off and 
she ends up saying that like oh i'm tired tonight i don't really want to hang out <laughs> you regret like, that decision the, the story the joke i had could have been another 10 minutes yeah, easily totally. if i had went with to tracy morgan to patrice o'neill's comedy solo benefit that would have been a trip yeah so he described you as the as the brown sam kinnison how would you describe your your onstage persona and do you feel like it's different than your than your real life persona i'm more reasonable in real life i listen to people and have conversations (laughs) i have strong opinions but it's certainly on stage i'm a lot more strident it's not to say that my opinions soften when I'm off stage, but I'm certainly not a guy who talks like that, you know, with that same level of like, this is this is a, this is a one way street. This is the way we're going. I'm more self-deprecatory. I'm more personal and, and honest, which is a thing I'm, I'm striving for. You know, I did it a little bit in this special, just a little bit. But I really do want to be able to do what the, the great comics do, you know, what Pryor did, right? What Mark Marin still does, which is the ability to make yourself vulnerable on stage. You know, I mean, Hannah Gatt be special my god it's painful at the end and she like completely you know by design doesn't allow the jokes to defend her she actually is putting her weapons down and just revealing herself to the audience like things like that i refuse to say they are not comedy they are absolutely part of comedy because comedy and tragedy are two sides of the same coin and and it's really how you play off both of them you know if we're gonna dismiss that is not comedy you know richard Pryor, one of his my favorite records his bicentennial album the last track on there it's it's 1976 he's talking about the 200th anniversary of america and he talks about you know america dressing up a minstrel creating a minstrel character who's going to be the mascot of the 200 years and he does an impression of this character and it's the most devastatingly painful thing you could hear it's funny and then it stops being funny and then it ends and it's it's honestly one of the most powerful pieces of audio i've ever heard and are we gonna say that how prior ended his stand-up hour a legendary hour is not comedy we're gonna dismiss prior talking about some of the most devastating parts of his life when he when they didn't always have jokes as not comedy like to me that part is something i want to expose expose more of because i think currently as a comic i think i'm I think I'm a good comic and I think I I people know me through what I believe and I've started to open up a little bit about family and giving give people more context to like this is why this guy says what he says um but it's still I I feel like I'm still more guarded than I, than I wish I was I feel like stylistically I don't you know I mean there's a little bit of Paul Mooney in there because that's certainly one of my first major influences. You know, Mar- Margaret chose the reason I wanted to do stand-up, and I think there's definitely a bit of, of her in there. Chris Rock, Chappelle, all the comics that confronted race and used, whether it's bluntness or absurdity, were able to bring about. Chappelle, someone else who uh, who got very serious in his most uh, recent thing he put out, the the 846. Oh, to call it a stand-up special is, it, it's, you know, I mean, I, it doesn't even matter what you call, but that that's just, that's, powerful political art regardless of how we label it not necessarily hilariously funny but and i don't always think comedy has to be you know i think that comedy at the end of the day has to be funny but there's also there's lots of different intersecting pieces you know and everything doesn't need to be a laugh a minute have you been able to during this time work on material at all whether about the virus or about becoming a father or or that kind of stuff a little bit it's hard because i 
I don't know when I'll perform them again. And I, I don't want to do these outdoor shows. I'm not interested. I didn't like doing outdoor shows when <laughs> yeah. before yeah. COVID. Why do I want to do that now with social distancing? Or Zoom shows. Zoom shows, which I've tried. And it just feels like, oh, I'm being the funny guy on the work conference call. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want that. Yeah. Like That's not stand-up. That's not stand-up. And like I know that there's comics who really have turned it into a creative challenge and have really done some cool stuff with it. Like Jackie Cation has really made it like stand up for her and, and and has found ways to get an audience and hear an audience. I just can't I, unless I'm out of the house, unless there's that feel that energy that comes with I'm going to a thing. You know, here's the performer walking on stage, like all the things that that build an anticipation and an excitement that I'm going to a thing. The idea that someone is watching me do stand up while checking their email while watching porn, <laughs> while like, you know, playing on their phone. If you did that in a live thing, I'd call you out on it. I can't say anything. And it's, it's just, it makes me feel terrible to mm-hmm. imagine. So yeah. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm interested in doing stand up and I'm not interested in shortchanging it. And at the, t- at the current time, I don't see a plan for me to get back on stage until things are better. I know other comics have continued to tour and they're doing social distancing and they're being, but for me, the idea of someone getting sick because they came to see me bring joy to them is I'm not interested, nor do I want to put friends and family in danger. Yeah, I mean, you know? I think Unless, a lot of a lot of people have sort of used the testing as a as a way to say, oh, it's fine. But I think that everything that's gone on with the White House has pretty much proven that that's not something to no. be relied on. And you can be asymptomatic, and it, there's a whole there's a ton of issues, and there very few people have instant tests. You know, like none of this is get out of here. Like this is even the NBA and the NFL, even with their precautions, Major League Baseball, people are still getting sick. I mean, like this is if multi-billion dollar industries are still dealing with it, with their protections, you think comedy clubs can do better, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You mentioned Margaret Cho was the, you know, comic who really made you want to start uh, doing comedy. What what was it about her that that made you, you know, want to want to start doing this? There's nobody there was nobody like her. I mean, there was certainly nobody like me. And so that made it hard to, as much as I loved comedy, it was, it made it hard to, so much of art when you're a person of color, especially when you're growing up is trying to relate to the white American experience and see your commonalities with that experience because they're human. I'm human. This isn't that complicated, which is also what makes it painful when people say they don't want to see, this isn't going to relate to a Midwestern audience and Indian American comedy. And this is like that whole line. It's like, that means they're unwilling to try to see their shared humanity with us. And that, you know, it sucks because if you are not in, uh, in the majority in this country, then you actively, in order to enjoy any kind of art, you actively have to work to find that commonality. You just have to. You don't, you don't have the privilege to not. And so as much as I loved stand-up, I, you know, it, there was always that missing piece of this doesn't quite, it doesn't connect close to my experiences. Margaret Cho, as the child of immigrants, as you know, like me being the first generation born in this country, it hit like this is someone who's like me and she says what she wants and she commands an audience and people pay attention to her. And there's nobody else on TV like her. Like when there are characters who are Asian or South Asian, they're accented and they're used a particular way. This is somebody who's talking to us straight, like giving us exactly what she wants to give us directly to consumer. You know, of course, when I was 10, I wasn't viewing it in that term, but that's what it was. It was like, this is somebody who is 
so powerful. That's what it felt like. This person is on stage and there's cameras on her and she's saying what she wants to say. And people have to listen to her. And as someone with immigrant parents, as someone who grew up in a diverse setting, as someone who, you know, was bridging those living with different cultures at the same time, she, to me, not being black, white, or even Latino, it was the closest thing I had to my experience. And so it gave me, it planted a seed, like maybe, maybe I could do this. Coming up, Hari talks about the lasting influence of his documentary, The Problem with Apu, and how he feels now that several white actors have stepped down from voicing characters of color on TV. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I want to ask you about your late-night stand-up debut, which was on, I believe, Jimmy Kimmel Live oh, in God. 2007. Um, <laughs> oh and I think, God, you, I think yeah. you, you say in it that you opened with the first joke that you ever wrote, which I thought was, yeah. was interesting. So what do you remember about that night, um, that day, performing on, on Jimmy Kimmel? It was surreal, first of all, because I was in Seattle. I moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. Comedy was a hobby I did at night, and I built a following in Seattle, which was very unexpected, because we're talking about 2005, 2007, like, in that range, like, Mindy Kaling just got on TV because of The Office. Aziz had just gotten Human Giant or something. Like, it was new. Russell Peters existed, but he was more of a cultural phenomenon for Asians and South Asians. There's a handful of actors, like Cal Penn and Asif Man, we had made the daily show i think in 06 or something it's still all like yeah it was all in that in that early time yeah yeah it did, we didn't exist like you know the idea that i'm in like one of the first waves you know post um russell peters and all that like i'm like like me aziz kumail like that's around all around the same time like that's 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 weird you know but that's <laughs> yeah. what it was there were there wasn't anybody for the most part stand-up wise who was popping up so I had no intention on doing it professionally, and I got discovered by the HBO Comedy Festival, which at the time was a big deal. Before the internet was how you discovered people, these festivals were how you broke talent. And I got a spot on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Again, I was working as an immigrant rights organizer. They knew I did comedy, but I didn't talk about it very much. (laughs) My boss at the time was Pramila Jayapal, who's now a congresswoman from Seattle. She was a mentor, still a friend. Uh, I took a day off from work. Didn't tell them where I was going. <laughs> Flew down to L.A., shot the show. It was weird. I, I was given a tour of the theater, right, the famous theater, and um, walked outside, and there was a long line of people about to go in, which was amazing. And my therapist from Seattle was online, <laughs> which was so surreal, because I had stopped seeing her just because I was like, ah, this, is, this isn't really working anymore. And instead of, like, saying this isn't working, I did the thing where I just... You know, I ghosted my therapist. <laughs> like I, and then she, I'm like, oh, she's done. She, yeah. she's, she's she gets it. Yeah. She'll understand. 
And so I hadn't seen her in months. And so all of a sudden she calls my name and I'm like, Sue? She's like, hey, Harry, are you are you going to be on the show? And I'm like, yeah. Why are you here? It's like, oh, this is one of our favorite shows. We, we were waiting online. I'm like, okay. That's so cool. I'll, I'll get you in. I'll get you in. She's like, Can I, is it okay if I tell my husband that I know you? Which, by the way, is a, is a violation. Yeah. Of parent, yeah. of, of therapist, uh, patient, patient <laughs> privacy. But I said yes, because the whole thing was sort of, so already it was, it was so, it was very weird. Never, <laughs> I'd never, before the experience of the HBO Comedy Festival and Kimmel, I'd been to San Francisco once to audition for the HBO Comedy Festival. It's the only time I'd ever been to San Francisco. First time I went to LA was to audition for the HBO Comedy Festival for their f- callbacks, their final round, which I got. And then the second time I went to Los Angeles, it was to be on Jimmy Kimmel Live. That is crazy. So it was not at all expected. My stand-up at the time was fine. Uh, the jokes that made it, like, I think they were some of the more accessible ones. The first one was a joke I wrote when I was 16 or 17. <laughs> it was part of my high school election speech. I was running for um, vice president of my senior class. So it was my junior year. And I said, I've been really nervous this week about the speech. I've been really nervous. My stomach's been a goddamn mess. And for a while there, I thought maybe I wasn't nervous. Maybe I was pregnant. (laughs) But that's, of course, impossible because I'm a virgin. (laughs) So a thing I wrote as an election speech. That is so funny. And it brought down the house in 1999 as well. And then all of a sudden, eight years later, it's my opening joke on Kimmel and it still worked. It That's feels pretty good. Great. It was a pretty good joke writer at 16, that meant, but it was also really sad that that joke was still working. Please welcome Hurry Kundabalu. Let me be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen. I've been really nervous about this particular show. I'm a young comic. They gave me this great spot on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and I've, I've just been really nervous about it. All week, my stomach's been acting up. My stomach's been a mess. And for a while there, I thought maybe I wasn't actually nervous. Maybe I was pregnant. <laughs> That's, of course, not possible, because I'm obviously, you know, a virgin. <laughs> so. That's the first joke I ever wrote when I was 16 years old, and it's still very... Painful to me. Uh, Not that much fun to tell anymore. I was nervous. Every transition was pre-scripted. Every reaction, even when the audience isn't laughing hard, I'm not adjusting to it. I'm like, I'm doing it the way I've done it in practice. Just push through. Just push through, pretend the audience isn't there. Like, I'm clearly terrified to be there. I was being very self-deprecatory in part because I think at that time I felt in order for the audience to like me, especially if I'm going to be political or, or talk about race at all, I had to bring myself down a notch. And the way to do that was, you know, just to make fun of my appearance or stuff like which, you know, I. I don't do as much. I do, like, in the Tracy Morgan joke, I did it, and but that joke was in the context of a lot of other things. You kind of turn it on its head, too, by by being unexpectedly confident about other things. and so, Yeah. And I wasn't turning it on its head yeah. back in 2007. <laughs> I was exploiting it in order to, please, white people, don't, don't get scared. <laughs> don't it's hate just me. me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's totally what it was. I started in Seattle, too, so the crowds at the time, like, that was part of the, what I was factoring in. So, you know, this set was like a 20, how old was I, 20? 
five, had never even thought about being on TV, had never auditioned for a thing until the last few months, had no intention on pursuing this as a career, had gotten into the London School of Economics and was going there to get a human rights master's degree the next year. Like I had a different life planned. And stand up was this dream, very distant dream that I, until I got an email from J.P. Buck, who was still a friend of mine, who now is a producer at Conan, until I got an email from him when he was working at the HBO Comedy Festival, this was not real. I stumbled into a comedy career. And I don't know how often that happens. <laughs> yeah. Some, yeah. Some people are like, yeah, it's all they, all they ever thought about was comedy and, and didn't have a plan B, but it sounds like you, you had kind of had a plan A. Yeah. Santa was not <laughs> a plan. Certainly if it's a plan B, the, the, what, one is I can't even imagine. What is plan A if plan B is stand-up yeah. comedy? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess tr- crash test dummy, maybe. <laughs> but I think that when I was in, when I was in London, I think I, I knew I missed it. And I knew that this door is open. I don't know why it's open. It never seemed possible to be open, but there's just enough room where it looks like I have something. And if I just try, what would happen? And uh, I kept going. But that Kimmel appearance, first of all, I thought I was after the appearance, I thought I was going to be like somewhat famous. I did. That was the time, you know, we were in the middle of one TV appearance doesn't make you anymore, which it did in Carson. And but it was after that era where you could get your own sitcom the morning after your Carson appearance. And nobody told me an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live in 2007 would have meant a thousand dollar check once. (laughs) I did not realize that. So the career was off to a nice start. And then I think my career has never been a, um, you know, I had a really nice quick start up. And then it's been just a lot of slowly building and going up and down with, with some peaks and then some plateaus and then peaks and plateaus. Like, I think the style of, of comedy I do, certainly it almost feels like it's it's strange. It feels like I've aged into the era where it makes the most sense. I feel like the stuff I do now makes sense more for the audience than it did back then, because we have a generation that is more aware of things. And it's the same way I feel about Totally Biased, the show I used to write on for W. Kamau Bell. Like that show was about maybe four years ahead of its time, five years ahead of its time. It it was just before this wave of wokeness where people really started being critical of a lot of the stuff that we were critical of in a comedy show back then. And the way we shared diverse voices and stories in an aggressive manner and not simply for the sake of tokenization. I will say that that Kimmel set was not ahead of its time. Uh, It was not a good set. I look at it and I cringe. Everyone said it was great except my mom, who wasn't even crazy about me doing stand-up, but said to me, like, you're better than that. <laughs> you could you could do better. You, you're you're better than that. And I was so angry. I was so angry. Everyone's happy for me, and you can't. And I look at it now. She was she was right. <laughs> I looked nervous. I had no confidence. The delivery was inconsistent. Like I was not a professional. I didn't feel like a professional. I didn't come off as a professional. The confidence wasn't wasn't there. Like n- now, you know, I did a set. My my favorite set I did on Conan was a set. I think I probably got the least laughs. My delivery was great. I worked the audience to the best of my ability. The audience, I remember talking to Jimmy Pardo that day and and Jimmy Pardo, who warms up the crowd, said they were out in the sun because we had some difficulty setting something up. They were out in the sun an extra 45 minutes. Yeah. So they're exhausted. And so just know that. And I went on stage and I'm like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) Like I'm going to deliver my, my heart out I love these jokes. I know they're funny. Whoever's into it is into it. 
I mean, that to me, I remember after that set thinking, this is what I wanted to do on Kimmel the decade previous or whatever number of years previous. And I couldn't do. There was no way in hell I could do it because looking at that camera scared me to death. So I want to touch on um, the problem with Apu a little bit because, you know, we that was sort of the thing that I kind of put you on the on the map for a lot of people, including me. That was the thing that I first interviewed you about a few years ago. And there's just been so much interesting continued fallout from that, which is kind of amazing, both with The Simpsons specifically and Hank Azaria, you know, deciding not to do the character anymore, but also just this reckoning in animation that's happened, I think, since the George Floyd protests and everything where there's all these, you know, white actors basically saying, you know what, I'm not going to, we're not going to play these characters anymore or being sort of forced to, to, to step down from them. So I kind of want to just get your, your thoughts on all of that, everything that's happened, you know, in, just in the last few months, really, um, in this animation world. First off, it really upsets me that it takes the brutal murder of a black man in Minneapolis to change animation. Do you know what I mean? Same thing with that Aunt Jemima thing where they got rid of the, the, the stereotypical figure and all this other stuff. That's what it takes, really? You know, like these are decisions that should have been made years ago. And it also tells me, you know, all these years people complain about all these activist groups and they just keep complaining over everything. And then eventually you find it, oh, they were right. That what, and people finally are like, yeah, that is, that is true. So it kind of is also that sad, like when you stand up for anything, you're going to get beaten down for it if it's not the popular point of view or if it's a point of view that there's enough defensiveness or disagreement over. I mean, like with the Apu film, you know, the, the criticism from a lot of people wasn't really about the film because they hadn't seen the film, especially globally, because the film wasn't available in Australia until a few months ago. And same thing with Canada and and in England, like for the first so long, it wasn't on Netflix. It still isn't on Netflix. So it was only available in New York, not New York, sorry, in America via like Hulu. You had to pay for it really for the most. So most people who had an opinion on it didn't see it. And especially I know in South America, it wasn't accessible, but I'm getting death threats in Spanish and Portuguese. So like (laughs) clearly like people heard things about it. It really was more about this global anger or this anger about political correctness and people changing everything and no one can have fun. It had nothing to do with the actual argument or discussion or the fact I'm a Simpsons fan. M slash was. I don't know how I feel <laughs> yeah. anymore. Honestly, I was a, a fan until probably the moment. Honestly, is that the thing they did with Lisa Simpson and Marge? That kind. That kind of was like okay. You there was a shark to be jumped. You've you've jumped. Yeah, it. I mean um, that was really bizarre what they did. Kind of just briefly addressing. They really did address your film directly, which I'm not sure you ever expected that they that they would. But the only thing was missing was the phrase "fuck you, hurry, Kabbalah." <laughs> but other than that, it was pretty. They looked into the camera it feels like they're looking at me well what am i supposed to do it's hard to say something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect what can you do some things will be dealt with at a later date if at all yeah that must have been pretty weird when when did you see that or how did you see it for the first time. I heard about it the day of and I hadn't seen it. So I was like scouring the next day for clips. Somebody posted the episode and I saw it and I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> like it looks so the whole idea of an episode about political correctness is, is destroying all these things already makes the Simpsons look so old. Secondly, 
throwing Lisa into it, who Lisa's a fucking social justice warrior. She was a social justice warrior and killjoy before we had the terminology. Like, she, that's who she is. So to use her character to deliver that message is shows you the show has lost something. Also, you know, I, I heard that, like, Hank Azaria didn't know that was being filmed. A lot of the actors, like, they taped their parts. This was added I, I probably by some of the writers and um, Al Jean, like, after the fact. So this is almost feels like a grudge that they wanted to put in after just to settle it, which is when it's like, when did you become the status quo? You know, when did you become no longer part of counterculture? And The Simpsons has never been completely liberal, but they certainly were able to poke enough fun where even with Homer, you at least had to offset it. So what Lisa said almost feel, felt like what Homer would say. And Lisa would have said what I said. And and so it was just inconsistent. And it, it also said a lot about white fragility, which to me, it's like a, such an, like a film on true TV that most people didn't watch criticizes a character that is a stereotype voice, but there's nothing about it that is shocking information. 30 years after the fact or whenever it was, and that's it, and you're the Simpsons, and that was enough for you to have to respond? I wasn't trying to troll them, but it's it felt like I did because you're they're not supposed to respond to me. You're not like, as the Simpsons, you make your choices, you do what you're supposed to do, but you don't show that weakness to me. That's an indication that you couldn't handle the criticism. That means that you weren't capable of handling it and it didn't matter what the criticism was. You felt guilty. You felt bad. You felt annoyed that somebody questioned you. You felt that everyone's too sensitive. And that's what happened. I mean, like, it, it's it's really kind of shitty. And at the end of the day, what annoys me is the only person that really affected, like, on a on a day-to-day level was me. Like, nobody else <laughs> had to deal with anything. Like, the show's still going, you know? Like, Hank's still getting to do other voices. They're still making their money. I'm dealing with death threats. I'm dealing with extra security at shows. So it's like, I'm not... What is... And at the end of the day, it's a fucking, it's a documentary about a cartoon (laughs) character. Do you know what I mean? It was a side project I did. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is great. This lines up perfectly with the release of the Netflix special later once this comes out. This is nice. Okay. It'll, It'll make some noise for a month or two. It's on true TV. People won't see it. It'll run its course. And we move on with our lives. Two years of it. <laughs> you, you never would have expected that it would be this, no. yeah, have this much influence, though. Which is kind of crazy. I mean, it did it did lead to Hank Azaria stopping doing the character. More, what's more important to me is it led to Hank Azaria like going on his own personal journey and talking about race. And you know, from what I've read, he's read a lot of books and he's gone to a lot of different kinds of things where, like, you know, talked about critical race and representation. Like, he's actually grown as a human being. And the thing is, what happened with Hank and what I've read is kind of what I wanted to happen with the larger conversation that that the film was sparking. And apparently the only guy that did anything was (laughs) Hank Azaria. Like, that's everybody else, like... Well, that's not true. It's not everybody else, but so many people didn't watch it and hated it. And Hank actually did the work, which is like exactly what you're supposed to do. Like you do the work and figure it out. And, you know, when I heard people say, I really hated your documentary until I watched it. <laughs> I mean, that says everything. Yeah, that's I all you need to, hear. to say. 
Yeah, I'm glad we got to follow up on the Apu thing because I, I generally do hate talking about it. But you and I remember had a really great conversation about Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. When we when we and I remember it was one of the few conversations I didn't cringe at. <laughs> oh, good. That's so, always so what I, I want to hear. It. So we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians like yourself, who is another comedian who just has really made you laugh harder than anything else in your life? It could be someone you saw on stage or someone that you you know know personally and have hung out with. Or, or is that has to be one uh, well you can do more than one if you want but what comes to mind when you think of you know someone who's just really made you laugh paul mooney made me laugh harder than anybody ever had when i saw him in 2003 at the dc improv he did like three hours the wait staff hated him <laughs> i mean i never knew you could make white people uncomfortable by t- sharing your reality about race and still be that funny and not care if the audience walked out or not because you like it was I, my ribs hurt for two days i never laughed that hard i was shocked too just like <laughs> you can say this stuff um so that was the first real and obviously the other legends like Chappelle and chris rock and that if you take it outside of the world of my heroes like all-time heroes kamau still makes me laugh Dwayne kennedy I, me, Kamau, and our friend Ahame Filayalua, who did the bulk of the work, produced his debut record. I've listened to that at least 40 times since, like, COVID. It is so funny. It's called Who the Hell is Dwayne Kennedy? And he's just such a brilliant comedy writer and performer that is, is he's one of those, like, you know how there was that movie about Eddie Pepitone a bunch of years back? And it was, it was one of those stories of this is a guy people don't know and they should because he's such a unique. Dwayne's one of those guys. It's a good and recommendation, yeah. He's just, and both on and off stage, makes me laugh harder than anybody else in comedy. And then I would say uh, Aparnan Ancherla, who is hysterical hysterical and the comic she's grown into like she was always funny and the one-liners were great and as a joke writer like exquisite like one of the best joke writers in the country but her like the way her stand-up is now built to multi-levels stories political personal yet with the same skills from before added on to to this you know, rich palette of, you know, she, she's just using more colors and brushes to, to paint the picture. It's incredible. And I, I feel like I laugh so hard at her stuff, especially her mental health stuff. And I feel like whenever she puts that hour special out, I can't imagine it not being massive. I was just thinking that she seems like she's due for like a really amazing hour long special. It just feels like people are going to like who don't know her like in, in mainstream or know her just from Comedy Central's from corporate or from commercials or her voice from cartoons. She to me is just she's going to I can't imagine a world where she's not this massive comedy star where there's like a generation of young people who are modeling themselves after her the way other people model themselves after Maria. Bamford or Sarah Silverman or Mitch Hedberg. Like, she's a singular voice. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's rare. She's, in addition to being a friend, again, like in awe of, of what, like the co- comedian she's continuing to develop into. So, yeah. Well, I, I hope that special happens and then I can get her on the podcast when it does. Right. Yeah. No, you should, man. Like, that'd be great. It's a good time for comedy in general. I will say, despite the fact we can't actually do it in real <laughs> life, it's still actually a good time for comedy. Still a good time. Well, Hari, thank you so much much for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. And it was really fun. I thought we, you know, talked about a lot of good stuff, so I'm glad that people will get to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully one day I'll meet you in real life once this is all. Yeah, that would be great. Whenever. (laughs) All right, take care, man. Thank you so much to Hari Kondabolu for that enlightening conversation. You can subscribe to his podcast with W. Kamau Bell, 
Politically Reactive wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, how about giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.